We'll go back through some of the psalms that we covered this summer to keep them fresh in our minds and our hearts. Psalm 56, I'll say the portions that are in plain print. Y'all respond with the parts that are in bold. Be merciful to me, O God, for men hotly pursue me. All day long they press their attack. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? All day long, they twist my words. They are always plotting to harm me. They conspire. They lurk. They watch my steps, eager to take my life. On no account, let them escape. In your anger, O God, bring down the nations. Record my lament, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I am under vows to you, O God. I will present my thank offerings to you, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Heavenly Father, this morning indeed um, we are gathering um, on the Lord's Day um, because we are under vows to you, Father. We are um, covenanted with you. And we come today um, to present our thank offerings to you, um, to render you praise and thanksgiving for all of your faithfulness and kindness and steadfast love in our lives, um, most especially of all how you have delivered us from sin and death and the evil one and the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray this morning, Father, that by your spirit um, you'd be with us even as we prepare for worship um, in this Sunday school hour, um, that you would um, give us your grace and your wisdom as we consider um, holiness and sanctification and what it means to be made holy in your sight and by your spirit in union with your son. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I've got some handouts this morning, or a handout this morning. Let's see, Donovan, will you help me? Caleb, will you help me? Everybody can get one. There should be plenty, and we can put whichever ones are left, whatever's left back on the on the sound booth so people can grab it as they come in. That'd be great. All right, friends, so as the handout's going out, just a quick way of um, reintroduction to this class. Um, we are in the process. We began um, in the spring, the late spring of uh, uh, earlier um, this year um, to consider um, the Human Sexuality Report published by our General Assembly uh, several years ago. Um, this is a report that um, if you don't know what a study committee is, basically our, in our denomination, um, the General Assembly um, has the uh, authority to basically um, create um, a committee of, of individuals who um, give diligent study to a topic and then produce a report um, intended for the good of the church. Um, these study committees don't have any kind of 
uh, judicial power or constitutional power in our denomination, but they are um, deliverances of the church and are to be given due attention and weight in that, ma in that way um, for our denomination. And, and that was the, the situation for this study can be reported. It arose um, out of just kind of the cultural milieu that we're in. Um, we're in a, in a culture right now that is wrestling deeply with questions of um, sexuality and gender and what it means um, to be uh, faithful. Um, well, well, the church, I think, is wrestling with what it means to be faithful in regards to the scripture in those areas. And so that's um, the context for this report. Um, I believe there were seven individuals on that um, committee. Um, some of the names are um, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, um, Kevin DeYoung, um, who's a pastor in North Carolina, um, 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 Derek Halverson, who's the president of Covenant College, was part of the report. Um, also, one a ruling elder in our presbytery, um, a licensed counselor who practices here in DFW, um, Jim Pachta, was one of the members of the study committee. Um, there are others, of course, Brian Chapel, um, who's now our stated clerk of our denomination and was also the president of Covenant Seminary when I was a student there and when Jeff was a student there. Um, Dr. Chapel was the president. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very useful document. Um, the document as a whole is contained in this um, publication that's come out from our denomination, very helpful, um, has includes various reports and papers on sexuality, um, but the biggest report is the one that we're studying um, that was produced a few years ago. Um, if you'll remember, we talked about the, the study committee and their preamble and their introduction to their work talked about having two um, tasks, one being pastoral and the other apologetic, and they didn't want to set these tasks against one another as they sometimes are, they wanted to carry out both um, with integrity and with care. Um, there's a pastoral task, which is to deal with sinners, um, with folks who need uh, grace and mercy and the love of Christ in the midst of their sexual struggle and sin and temptation. Um, and so the committee very much wanted to speak, speak to those um, issues um, in a pastoral way. But there's also the apologetic task, which is um, that the committee felt like it needed to speak truth um, according to the scriptures in the context of a culture that is very confused, um, to put it lightly, about issues of sexuality and gender. And so they sought um, throughout the report to carry out um, both uh, being pastoral and apologetic. Um, they identified two fears that people might have when they read a report like this. Um, one is that the report might be uh, harsh um, toward sexual centers. Um, it might be unkind or uncaring or not pastoral in that way. And another fear is that it might be um, compromising. Um, that it might not speak the truth um, with clarity and conviction. Um, it might bend the rules, so to speak. Um, and so they say, basically, we understand these fears. We ag agree that they're legitimate. And actually, it's worth considering when you come to a topic like this, uh, which of those fears is greater for you when you think about the church speaking on a topic um, like sexuality. Um, their argument is that um, they need to push forward to bring the whole Christ, the whole Christ. Um, Christ speaks both truth and love in his ministry and through his church, through his apostles, and they want to bring that kind of perspective to this issue. Um, so we've been working through the 12 statements that are at the head of this report that really summarize um, in a really um, good way, I think, um, the conclusions that they came to. Uh, we've looked um, in the spring at, at statements, um, the first six statements, which were our marriage, image of God, original sin, desire, concupiscence, and temptation. Um, 
concupiscence is basically it's a Roman Catholic view that essentially says that um, desires um, for sinful things are not sinful in themselves unless they're acted on by a discrete act of the will of the person um, um, who has them and and we're not going to get into this at length at all but essentially the reform view our view is that that's not the case um, that um, we're responsible for even sinful desires that we have are themselves sinful, um, regardless of whether or not we um, they lead to explicit sin in terms of actions um, in our life. So just want to, I know concupiscence is a word you may not be familiar with, so just to give you that clarification. Um, so that brings us today to the seventh statement, um, which is on sanctification, um, which is a topic I'm thrilled to talk about um, with you all and for us to think about together, particularly as regards, as it relates to, rather, um, to our sexuality. Um, so a couple things to say. One, within the Reformed tradition, we make a distinction between what's called definitive sanctification and what is called uh, progressive sanctification. Um, so definitive sanctification is um, the idea that uh, when we are united to Christ um, by faith, when we are regenerated and brought into union with him, um, we receive all the righteousness of Christ. Um, We are holy before God um, because of our union with him. Our sins are taken away. They're not only canceled, but we actually receive um, the holiness of Christ himself. His innocence, his righteousness, his righteous life, all of those things are imputed to us, and so we are holy um, before God in that way. Um, This is why the New Testament um, uses language like saints to describe um, all Christian people, um, regardless of, you know, how, what that holiness looks like in their life at that particular moment. Um, They are saints because they're, which saints is just literally means holy ones. Um, They are holy ones. You are holy ones um, because of your union with Jesus in a definitive way, in in a once and for all way. You have been made holy through your faith in Christ. It's, it's one of the fundamental promises of the gospel. Um, but we also, in the Reformed tradition, want to talk about what's called progressive sanctification, which is the idea that um, that holiness that we are given in Christ is something that we uh, live into in our lives. Um, one of the, a, a good way to think about this is uh, progressive holiness is um, the, the, what it means to become who you already are. Um, So in Christ, you are already holy, um, you're already united to him, and progressive sanctification is the way in which your life uh, becomes like Jesus's. And we believe, as Reformed Christians, um, that progressive sanctification is something that all of us as Christians are called to. Um, It's it's not an optional part of the Christian life. Um, It's something that's fundamental about what it means to be a believer, is that you become progressively holy, more and more holy over time, as the Spirit dwells within you and as you, as you abide in that union with Jesus, it leads to um, actual more ho- actually more holiness in your life. You become more holy. Um, um, y- you, you know, probably you become more aware of your sin as you become more holy, um, but, but I do believe that there is a um, path in the Christian life that we're called to where sin becomes less and less um, of, a, a, you know, we become more and more victorious over sin in our life. Um, that is part of what holiness is. But holiness is not only um, sinning less, so to speak, it is also taking on the attributes and the fruits of the Spirit. Um, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, etc., etc. 
um, we begin to live out those things um, through our union with Christ as the Spirit dwells within us. Um, so, it, so progressive sanctification is not only sinning less frequently, um, it is also um, taking on the life of Jesus. And that's why in the epistles, we're going to look at this today, um, in Hebrews 13, the epistles are so, so full of not only negative you know, exhortations, don't do this, don't do this, they're also full of positive um, exhortations, right? Do this, um, as, as we'll see today. Let brotherly love continue, the apostle says. And that, um, that's a, that's a, that task of growing in love is a part of what it means to be um, progressively sanctified by the Spirit. Um, and, and we can talk about this, um, but it's, it's important to say, I, I don't know how comfortable you are with this idea of progressive sanctification, um, but I would argue that the Scriptures clearly teach it um, now, the scriptures do speak in different ways about um, our, uh, what it means to be holy. Of course, um, the scriptures talk about, in Romans 3, as I've quoted or list here, um, Paul, as he's laying out the framework of the gospel in Romans, says that there is none who is righteous, not even one. Uh, no one does good. And there he's quoting from the Psalms, he's quoting from Isaiah, he's taking those texts, and he's applying them in his particular context. And that is certainly true before God. Um, none of us are holy in and of ourselves. All of us are, are wretched sinners. All of us are without hope. Um, there is no um, hope for any of us um, in terms of our own um, holiness in and of ourselves. And yet, the scriptures also call us um, to be holy. And they speak of it as though it's something that, like it's not just a hypothetical command. It's actually something that we're supposed to um, embrace and embody um, in our Christian life. So 2 Corinthians um, 6, the very end of that chapter, I just want to look at that for a second as we um, walk into this topic. Um, Paul is talking here about actually um, sexual ethics, and um, he's, he's talking about um, not being uh, yoked to unbelievers um, he says in verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Right. So we are holy in that sense. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. Um, and, and God's promises to be near to his people and to walk among them and to be their God. Um, and it's for that reason that they shouldn't go out and touch unclean things. And then he says in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 1, continuing the same argument, he says, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, because we've already been made holy, we've already been made a temple of the living God um, by the Spirit, by our union with Christ, then he says, since this is true, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So do you see the logic that Paul is using there? He's saying, you're already holy. Um, and so, therefore, you need to bring the holiness of your life to completion um, in fear of God. You need to cleanse yourselves um, from every defilement of body and spirit. Um, so, in that passage, you have um, both definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification, that you are already holy, but that holiness is something that you're uh, meant to grow into and become more and more over time to be true in your life um, in concrete ways. Okay, does that make sense just as a framework to talk about these things? We could go a lot of other places in the epistles um, to talk of the, see the same kind of language. Um, this text from 1 Peter, 
Chapter 1 is another great example. Let's see, he says, um, Peter says, therefore preparing, and, and the therefore follows this long section about um, how we have been given um, an imperishable an inheritance, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, how we've been um, made pure and holy um, in him. And then in verse 13, he says, therefore, it's First Peter 1, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there he's saying, look forward to the last day when the holiness that you have now will be publicly announced to the world when you'll be vindicated in the last judgment um, through the grace of Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Um, so Peter doesn't have any problem saying, um, you know, you've received this great inheritance, um, you have been given access to a living hope in Christ, um, but because of that, now um, turn away from evil deeds and be holy, because the God who has made you his own is himself holy, and he calls you to holiness um, as he is. So there are lots of other examples in the epistles and other parts of the scriptures about this kind of language. The Bible has no problem calling us to holiness, and I, I do think this is a challenge in our day and age. Um, I was part of a conversation recently um, with a, 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 a another minister who was transferring into our presbytery, and he was making the argument that he thinks that um, the biggest issue in in uh, modern American Christianity is that um, essentially people are legalists, um, that they are trying to earn their way to heaven, um, and that what they really need is to, you know, just, they really need to, to hear a message of, of grace, and I don't disagree that people need to hear a message of grace, of course. I mean, you all know my heart. Um, every year I preach a sermon called You're the Beloved, and I tell you about your union with Christ, and, um, all of those things. Um, but I pushed back and I said, I'm not sure that's true in our culture. I suspect my conviction is that um, the, the ditch that we fall into as modern American Christians too often is a lack of regard for the law of God and a lack of seriousness in terms of our pursuit of holiness in our lives. And um, I think it's, I, we, we don't need to necessarily go into whether that what I'm saying is true or not in terms of defending it, but I just want you to consider that. I really do think that's true as you think about modern Western spirituality. Um, I don't think we um, are trying to earn our way to heaven by pleasing God generally. I think, uh, I mean, some of that I'm sure happens, but I think a greater problem in the church today is um, that we are uncomfortable with language of obedience. We're uncomfortable with language of actually we're called to a holy life. Um, we don't see the law as doing much for us other than pointing out our sinfulness and our need for grace. And I think those are mistakes. I think those are deficiencies in um, the church today. And pastorally, gently, but firmly, I want us to call us as a church, as our congregation at least, to saying holiness is something we should talk about. Sanctification is a real thing. Um, that we must embrace if we're going to be faithful Christians. Yeah, Jeremy, did you have a 
daughter question. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I think one of the categories we need to think about sanctification in, and this is beyond the purview of our discussion today, but just to say, is the category of maturity, um, which is something, and wisdom, which is something we don't talk a lot about in the modern church. But I think, if especially if you read the Old Testament, um, maturity and wisdom is a big part of what it means to grow um, as, a, as a believer, to grow as a Christian, um, so to speak. And yeah, and so certainly sanctification is far more than just sort of sin management. Um, it's also becoming, it's, I mean, fundamentally, sanctification is becoming like unto the image of Jesus Christ. Um, so in taking on his life um, in your life, um, becoming like him, not only in terms of the ways that you avoid sin, but the ways that you live, the way that you conduct and carry yourself in the world, the kind of faith that you have, the kind of joy that you have, the kind of contentment you have. Um, the way that you give yourself in service to others um, without, you know, demanding recognition or applause or uh, payback for those things. You know, like, th this is all part of what it means to be sanctified. Um, it's not only sinning less, it's also um, becoming like Jesus, fundamentally. Um, and, and wisdom and maturity, I think, are really helpful categories. And James has a lot to say, actually, about maturity and wisdom. Yes. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I genuinely am believe that is a one of the biggest failures of the modern church today in the West, at least, is a yeah, is a is a not holding the law of God in high enough regard. Um, yeah, yeah, Donovan. Who is they? The law. Yeah, I think what I would say, I mean, there are some modern preachers and teachers who explicitly reject the law. Um, you know, Andy Stanley would be a sort of really prominent example of that in, in the evangelical world today. Um, but I think what I'm speaking about is less of an explicit rejection of the law and more of a, uh, let's just not talk about it very much. Do you know what I mean? Let's Let's not highlight the law. Let's not... Um, 
you know, let's not make it central to the way that we talk about the Christian faith. And, and I think there's a failure there. Um, when I read the Psalms, um, the psalmists speak in unabashedly positive ways <laughs> about the law of God, right? And Psalm 119 is an ode, essentially, to the law and to the Torah, to the commands of God. Um, and it talks about them being more precious than anything else in the world. Um, and um, how the psalmist loves the law of God. He pants for it. He, you know what I mean? He, he, he weeps because um, the people do not keep God's commands. Um, that's what grieves his heart. And I think, like, if you read Psalm 119, it's a good question just to think about, is this, is this how I think of the law of God? Um, because I think that certainly our current cultural and even theological context that we live in doesn't encourage us to think about God's law that way. But I think we should, because the scriptures speak about it in those terms. All right, let's, let's jump into this um, topic here of sanctification. I'll read it all the way through, and then we'll talk about it. So this is the seventh statement in those 12 statements in this report. Um, so they make some general statements about sanctification, and then they try to make some explicit connections to um, especially same-sex um, attraction and sin. They say, we affirm that Christians should flee immoral behavior and not yield to temptation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, working through the ordinary means of grace, Christians should seek to wither, weaken, and put to death the underlying idolatries and sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior. The goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, but the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires through the reordering of the loves of one's heart toward Christ. Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we can make substantial progress in the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Nevertheless, this process of sanctification, even when the Christian is diligent and fervent in the application of the means of grace, will always be accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections with the spirit and the flesh warring against one another until final glorification. The believer who struggles with same-sex attraction should expect to see the regenerate nature increasingly overcome the remaining corruption of the flesh, but this process will often be slow and uneven. Moreover, the process of mortification, that is, putting um, to death sin, and vivification, that is, coming alive to God, involves the whole person, not simply unwanted sexual desires. The aim of sanctification in one's sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons of the opposite sex, though some persons may experience movement in this direction, but rather involves growing in grace and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. All right, so I wanted to put that statement before you so you heard it all at once. I'm going to walk through it now just um, a little bit in more detail. So they say, we affirm that Christians should flee immoral behavior and not yield to temptation. Um, here's a place where I probably would have liked the committee to have been a little bolder um, and I think a little clearer. Um, when I hear the word should, I think of a suggestion, right? Um, you know, you should, um, I don't know, you know, let the guy over in traffic when, um, He's trying to get in. Um, you know, that's a thing you should do. I mean, you're not going to get a ticket, right, if you don't. Um, but 
we don't use that language like, you, you know, you should file your taxes um, every year. Um, or you should, um, I don't know, whatever, right? You should, um, a husband should be, you know, sexually faithful to his wife. You know, like, we don't use that kind of language. And I wish the committee had been a little more courageous or clear. I think um, we affirm that Christians shall, maybe would be a better thing to say, or just take out the word. We affirm that Christians flee immoral behavior and, not, and don't yield to, t- like this is what Christians do. This is the kind of things that Christians are. Um, so anyway, that's just a, they kind of use that sort of modified language, you know, um, throughout the statement in different places, and it's, I don't love it. Um, I, would, I would probably want to strengthen that language, because I think we can speak that way. The Bible speaks that way, right, um, about um, what it means to be a Christian. Um, you've heard Paul and Peter both use that kind of language. Um, so we affirm that Christians shall or do or, or even maybe must to some extent, we could say, uh, flee immoral behavior and not yield to temptation. By the power, um, so, so they're, they're, yeah, so they're making distinctions there um, between action and then um, just temptation itself. Uh, by the power of the Spirit, working through the ordinary means of grace, Christians should seek to wither, and again, I would say Christians seek, or Christians shall seek, to wither, weaken, and put to death the underlying idolatries and sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior. I think this is, aside from the edit I just made, um, a very helpful statement um, because it makes clear that the sanctification that you expect to experience in your life as a Christian um, is not one that you produce um, through um, an action of the will, of your own will, right? Becoming holy is not a matter of a stiff upper lip and, you know, gritting your teeth and just trying harder. Um, maybe that's how you, you know, get in shape. I don't know. Um, maybe that's how you change your eating habits or you get your, you know, college degree or something. Um, but that's not, those, those kinds of things are not fundamentally how you become holy. Um, it's not a matter of, you know, taking on the right habits and, ex- and having the right kind of willpower primarily. I'm not saying the will's not a part of it or habits aren't a part of it. They are. But this is how it is. It's the power of the spirit um, that makes you holy. Um, the Spirit um, carries you along um, as you abide in union with Christ. Um, by the power of the Spirit, working through the ordinary means of grace. The means of grace, right? We talk about the ordinary means of grace all the time here. Um, ordinary doesn't mean they're not important. Ordinary means that they're um, trustworthy, um, that they're customary, and that this is the way the Spirit works generally. Um, the means of grace in our tradition, as you look down, um, after the statement, Westminster Shorter Catechism 88, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So we believe um, that the scriptures, um, the sacraments, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, um, and prayer, um, both the corporate and public prayer of the church on the Lord's Day, but also um, the, the private prayer um, that we experience in our families and our lives individually. And I should say, in terms of the word, we mean both, uh, most especially, the preaching of the word 
and the Lord's Day worship of the church, but also the reading and studying of the word that takes place um, in our lives and our homes um, throughout the week. We believe that these three things, word, sacraments, and prayer, um, are the channels by which God gives us Jesus, just to put it really plainly. Um, those are the ways that God gives you Jesus. Um, now, he, he might give you Jesus in some other way. Um, you certainly um, can abide with Christ. Um, you know, but e I mean, I would even push back a little bit on that. Like, you know, I was about to say you can abide with Christ, you're out in creation or whatever. Um, and it's a beautiful sunset and, um, or whatever it is. But even in that moment, I would argue that, you know, if you're abiding with Christ, you're, you're, you're contemplating him, you're communing with him in some way, right? I mean, you're not just getting Jesus in a vacuum from the sunset. Um, like prayer is happening there, right? Um, hopefully, um, some form of communion with God in prayer. Um, I really do think these are, this is the way that God gives you Jesus. He gives you Jesus through the scriptures, through the preaching of the word, through the reading of the word, through the study of the word, through the memorization of the word, um, through taking the word on your lips, even in prayer. Um, he gives you Jesus in your baptism, which is a one-time thing, and then he gives you Jesus um, week by week um, through the uh, Lord's Supper, um, which is the continuing sacrament of the Christian life. He gives you Jesus um, in prayer um, as you um, pray um, with the church, um, as you pray in your homes, as you pray in your cars, as you pray um, in your beds. Um, he gives you Jesus um, in all of these ways, and it's the Spirit works through these ordinary means of grace. Um, that's what we believe. Um, and so by the Spirit working through ordinary means of grace, Christians um, seek to wither, weaken, and put to death not only sin itself, but the underlying idolatries and desires, sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior. Um, as they say, the goal is not just consistent fleeing from and regular resistance to temptation, um, but actually the diminishment and even the end of the occurrences of sinful desires through the reordering of the loves of one's heart towards Christ. I hope that you know something about what this is speaking of, friends, um, as you think about your Christian life, that, that not only um, are you, as you know, Jeremy was putting it, you know, engaging in unwanted behavior less frequently, but actually you're not wanting sinful things as much, right? Um, you know, you, you see the destructiveness of, um, of sin, um, and, and you're, you're not even desiring it in the same way that you once did. Um, that, that is, as they say, is the goal. The goal is not just for our outward behavior to change, but for our heart um, to become different, for our heart to, to, to not only want sin less, but to want holiness in Christ more, um, to want communion with him more. Um, and they use this language of reordering the loves of one's heart, which is language that's fundamentally rooted in Augustine in terms of Christian theology. Um, Augustine makes this argument all over the place. Confession, his confessions are a, you know, a long argument about the centrality of desire and, and Augustine's own testimony about how desire led him around into sin um, all of his life. Um, but then God, uh, and, and Augustine was a famous sinner, um, sexually and otherwise. Um, but then when, when the spirit came and inflamed, he uses this language of like f inflaming his heart and awakening him to the sweetness of Christ, 
and, and he talks about how everything was different. And what was different was that his desires changed, that he became um, essentially in love with God. Um, and it was that connection, that communion that he knew after his conversion with God because of the way that the Spirit had changed his heart, um, that he, his sin decreased, his, his life became holy. It was because of the ways in which his desires changed. Um, this, by the way, is why the first great commandment is, of course, what? What's that? No other gods? Well, I'm thinking about love the Lord your God, right? When Jesus summarizes the two commandments, what, are the, what, are the, what is the greatest of the commandments? Jesus says, well, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, right? Um, given to Israel in Deuteronomy, right? The Shema, hero of Israel. Um, uh, and then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so th that's why the first great commandment in regards to God is to love him. And as we talked about, actually, Matt, um, is in the Ten Commandments last year, um, that no, have no other gods before me is, not, is, is primarily about love. It is primarily about desire. It's about um, who you um, adore and who you um, are attracted to and who you give yourself to. Um, so there, there's no contradiction there. Um, so anyway, so that, that's just something to think about. Um, that's what we want. That's what the, the Christian life that's what the means of grace lead you into. And this is, this is certainly my experience personally. Um, and I, I believe if you think about your own life, it'll be true for you as well. The more that you experience Christ in, um, in the word, in preaching, um, in studying the word, in hearing it read, and in reading it yourself, the more you experience Christ in, um, in the sacrament, and the partaking of the Lord's Supper, um, the more that you experience Christ in, in, in prayer and, and you learn the remarkable adventure that prayer is of the soul, the more you want, right? Like you don't slack your desire by doing those things. Actually, you realize how hungry you are um, once you start reading the scriptures and really meditating on them and, and, and being like the blessed man in Psalm 1 who meditates on God's law day and night. Um, when you, you know, churches, this is an interesting thing, um, just in our denomination, increasingly churches are um, moving in the PCA from quarterly communion to monthly communion or monthly communion to weekly communion. Um, and I'm sure there are counterexamples to this. I'm sure there are churches in our denomination that have gone from weekly communion back to monthly. But it's not usually how it works, right? Like churches that are moving in that direction, they're not going back. Like they're like, yeah, this is good. We want more of the Lord's Supper. Um, and we don't want to, you know, go back to when we were just doing it once a month or once a quarter. Um, we want to do it all the time. Um, and it's just interesting to think about that, right? Um, um, once you start doing weekly supper, man, it's it's hard to lose that. It's hard to give it up because you want more of it, right? It's not like you're like, oh, that was great. Now I'm good for another three months um, in terms of communion. Um, no, you want it next Sunday. Uh, the same is true with prayer. Um, these things, the means of grace inflame our desire. Um, they, don't, they don't satisfy it in some fundamental way. Um, they inflame us for wanting more of God. They reorder the loves of our heart. Um, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, we can, I would say, 
we shall, we, we even we must, um, um, I don't think we need to qualify that language because uh, the scripture doesn't qualify it. Uh, and, and I think we need to be willing to talk about theological matters in the ways the scriptures talk about it. Um, we can, we must, we shall uh, make substantial progress in the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's a direct quotation, of course, from Hebrews, um, as we looked at um, last spring in our sermons. Um, nevertheless, and here's the qualification, which is a totally appropriate and right qualification. Don't hear what I'm not saying because this also is true. This process of sanctification, they say, even when the Christian is diligent and fervent in the application of the means of grace, right? They are reading the scriptures. They are participating in the sacraments. They are um, learning what it means to pray. It's still, their sanctification will always be accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections with the spirit and the flesh warring against one another until final glorification. And of course, of course, of course, this is true. Right. Don't hear me say um, that if your experience of sanctification is one with weakness and imperfection, even many weaknesses and many imperfections, that you are not progressing in holiness. Friend, yes, I understand. Believe me. I know what it is to have many weaknesses and imperfections in my sanctification. Um, and I, I'm sure that if you're honest, you do too. Um, this is Paul's great dilemma, right, in Romans 7. And where he's wrestling with, even as a uh, regenerated Christian man, as an apostle of the Lord, um, he does what he does not want to do, and he doesn't do what he wants to do. And there, there are these conflicts within him and inconsistencies uh, between um, what he knows to be true and how he actually lives. Um, this is certainly true of the Christian life. Please hear me say that. All right, before I start talking about the same-sex stuff here, any thoughts or questions real quick? Interaction. Okay. So what I'm describing about sanctification resonate? Does this sound like your life? <laughs> Good. I want it to. I want it to. All right, let's think about our sexuality for a second. The believer who struggles with same-sex attraction should expect to see the regenerate nature increasingly overcome the remaining corruption of the flesh, but this progress will often be slow and uneven. So they're just applying the principles they just stated to the particular um, situation of someone who, um, in, in their words, struggles with same-sex attraction. Now we've stated in previous statements um, that that attraction in and of itself is sinful. Um, it doesn't just require some act of the will to make it sinful, it is sinful in and of itself because it's against the law of God. Um, and, but they're, so they're saying the regenerate nature of a person with that struggle or temptation um, it should be overcome um, by the spirit. Um, but this progress will be slow and uneven as any of our sanctification is, uh, regardless of the particular temptations that we experience. Uh, moreover, and this is important to say, and this is true, right, not only for someone who struggles with same-sex attraction, but someone who struggles with sexual sin. I've certainly seen this, um, you know, with <coughs> with men who, let's say, struggle with pornography, just to pick a random thing that, you know, exists in our culture. Um, 
you know, people who are in, in, enslaved by pornography, sometimes you can reduce sanctification to, you know, just their attraction to pornography and their pr use of pornography or whatever. But the reality is, is that their sanctification is much bigger than that, right? It's not just about that issue. And in fact, there's a danger of making it only about that issue and thinking if only I can kick this, you know, porn habit or whatever practice that then I'll be good to go. And of course that, the, the, I mean, the way that sin works, the, 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 the seat of sin is that, you know, it can blind us to all sorts of other things that are also um, not right in our lives, that are not consistent, that are not holy or righteous. And, and the same is true for a person who struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, you know, their sanctification is not entirely bound up with um, the extent to which they experience attraction to those of the same sex. It, it can't be. That can't be the defining, one defining issue um, for them. It would be a mistake um, for them to believe that would be the case. That's not to diminish the importance of sexual holiness. It is fundamentally holy, uh, fundamentally a part of who we are, even a, even a central part of who we are. And so it must be part of the sanctification that we all experience. Don't hear me wrong. Um, Pornography must be put away um, for someone to be holy. It just must. Um, Same-sex attraction also must be um, mortified um, for someone to grow in holiness. Um, but, but we can't reduce um, sanctification to that one thing. Um, and then they say, this qualifying statement, the aim of sanctification in one's sexual life cannot be reduced to attraction to persons of the opposite sex. Though some persons may experience movement in this direction, but rather involves grace and perfecting holiness and the fear of the law of God. So essentially what they're trying to argue here is that a same-sex person, a same-sex attractive person rather, um, should not, we sh they should not themselves think or others should not hold out for them that, you know, just to use the sort of common terms in our culture, moving from homosexual desire to heterosexual desire being like the fundamental marker of their growth and holiness or sanctification. And I, I think that's true. Um, certainly, as I have thought about ways that I've, you know, folks that I've interacted with around this issue um, and ministered to, um, there are, there do seem to be um, situations where it is very difficult for a person who is attracted to the same sex to have that desire change and shift and become um, oriented toward the opposite sex in an exclusive way. Um, however, what I would say here is that I do think, I mean, I appreciate the warning that the committee writers are giving here. I would also want to hold out to say that it is appropriate for a person who has same-sex attraction, even deeply ingrained, even a person who has said, I have always been attracted, you know, if you're a man, to men, um, it is appropriate for that person to long for holiness. And part of holiness is having sexual attractions that are in accord with the nature in which God created uh, men and women, men and women. Um, and so, so I, I would not want to, for a person in that situation to, even if they didn't experience change in their attractions or desires for years, to quote unquote give up, right, and say this is just, how God made me, this is who I am, I'm always going to be this way. I would want that person to be regularly asking the Lord, will you change my heart? 
Um, will you make women sexually attractive to me? Um, will you take away the attraction that I have to men sexually? Um, will you purify my heart? Will you, will you, will you change it? Um, I don't think, I think it would be a mistake for a per I'm not saying the committee writers are saying this, but I, certainly this kind of language is out there in the church, that it's cruel or it's unloving or uncaring um, to say to a same-sex attractive person, you shouldn't stay there. This isn't, you know, it, it's, it's appropriate for you to ask the Lord to continue to change you. And yes, we know that sexual desires are mysterious and they're not just, you know, gritting your teeth um, it has to be something that God has to do, um, but it's not inappropriate, in my view. It's not unpastoral to, to continue to hold out for a person in that situation, um, that it would be a good thing for their sexual desire to change, um, and even to do whatever they can to encourage that, right? Um, and there are all sorts of ways we can talk about that. I mean, I, but, uh, yeah, so I, I would just say that. Does that make sense? Do you guys hear what I'm saying there? Um, that's something I would want to say clearly about this, this, this particular sin, this particular struggle. Um, it may be that God never changes in any fundamental way a person's um, sexual attraction or desires, um, but I do think it's right for us to hold out that that, that, is, that, that we want him to, um, that we desire that, that God... Um, can and, and at times does do that and certainly that is true another thing that I would say and this is my own experience with working with um, particularly men um, who wrestle with this issue it, it certainly is possible for heterosexual marriage to be something that is experienced and enjoyed and in a fruitful way for men who struggle continue to struggle with same-sex attraction does that make sense like it is it's very um, I know this anecdotally and also just because of you know reading that you do in the in the field, it's very possible for a man to develop a particular sexual attraction for a particular woman in the context of a marriage, um, while still, when he lusts or struggles with temptation, as a married man, his lust or sin is towards men, not women. Do you understand the situation I'm describing? Um, and this is a good thing. Like I mean, that's not good in like some vacuum, but this is a, this is a, a, generally speaking, a better situation than a man who doesn't have um, heterosexual um, experience in the covenant of marriage with a woman. This is, this is a, a means by which the Lord can sanctify and, and um, care for um, a man who has same-sex desires. And I'm not saying that every man who has same-sex desire should be married. I'm not saying that you should get married because it's going to like fix you or whatever. Um, that would be not good um, for anybody. But I'm saying in the church, as we think about this issue, we should not be unwilling to talk about marriage as something that is a good and holy calling, um, not only for those um, who are naturally, quote unquote, heterosexual in orientation, but also um, we should hold out marriage as a good thing. Um, in situations for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. That's my thought. That's my encouragement. And it, it bothers me sometimes when marriage is diminished as a, as a good outcome for folks, um, as, a, as a way that the Lord can bring healing and growth and sanctification. 
Any thoughts or questions about any of that? Since I've said nothing controversial in the last five <laughs> minutes. Yeah, Kim. Sure. Yeah. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, the Lord does do that sometimes. I mean, you hear about people who are delivered from alcoholism and in that way at times, you know, like they just stopped one day, right? And it was over. Um, God took away the desire. Um, and yeah, you hear about that sometimes with people who, who are in the situation with same-sex attraction, that the Lord really does change um, them completely. And, and absolutely God does that. I think that's obviously the exception. It's not normally what he does. Um, and it should not be held out as some kind of like, you know, norm. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, thanks be to God um, if he changes the desires of our heart in such a way as to make us not even desire the sin itself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, I think you could argue that one of the mistakes of, um, you know, the way this issue has been handled in the church at times is that sometimes that has been held out as the normative this needs to be everybody's experience if it's not, you know, you're, there's, which unfortunately I think encouraged people to be less than truthful about what they were actually experiencing because they felt like they had to conform to this experience of radical transformation of their desire. Yeah, one more. Kathina. I totally agree. Yeah, so Kathina is saying it's, it's good to talk about homosexual sin in the context of all sin, um, that in a very real sense, homosexual sin is like any sin. Um, and, and holiness comes in this area just like it does in any um, sinful area in our lives. And, and I want to be very clear. I've said this throughout our time um, in this um, series, but every person in this room is a sexual sinner. Um, if, you're, if, you, if you respond against that and say, ah, Friend, just let's just be honest, okay? All of us are sexual sinners, um, and that is a, just a, and so we need to approach the. We do certainly need to approach this topic in that light. Yeah, absolutely. Let me pray for us. Let's stand and pray. Father, we're grateful for um, your grace and mercy. We're grateful for our union with Jesus. We're grateful for how you have a wonderful plan for our life, and it is to make us holy and like unto your Son Jesus Christ. Would you, Father? indeed um, inflame our desire for holiness and that we might be made like unto your son we pray it in christ's name amen